Smithsonian affiliate, founded in 1928 at Sir Dimon Spring in Acadia National Park, and open year-round in downtown Bar Harbor with two locations and one mission to inspire new learning about the Wabanaki nations with every visit. More information at abbeymuseum.org. WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and all over the world at WERU.org. A healthy choice. The time's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM where, where uh, Wabanaki Windows with your host Donna Loring is up next. Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. So this morning, uh, we have a special guest, uh, Daniela Zalkman. Uh, Welcome to the show, Daniela. Thank you. Um, Daniela is... uh, an award-winning documentary photographer, and she's been doing some work uh, with the boarding school uh, survivors in Canada and Australia, as well as uh, the United States. Is that correct? Um, <clears throat> so I just want to tell you a little bit about Danielle. I hope I don't cover everything. I want to leave some time for you to tell us about yourself. <laughs> so, Okay. Uh, <clears throat> Danielle is a documentary photographer. She's based uh, <clears throat> between London and New York. Uh, she's a multiple grantee of the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. Uh, she's a fellow with the International Women's Media Foundation. And <clears throat> her work tends to focus on the legacies of Western colonization, from the rise of homophobia in East Africa to the forced assimilation education of indigenous children in North America. She won the 2016 Photo Evidence Book Award, the Magnum Foundation's Inga Morath Award, and the Magenta Foundation's Bright Spark Award for the project Signs of Your Identity. And Danielle's work regularly appears uh, in the Wall Street Journal, Mashable, National Geographic, and CNN, among others. Her photos have been exhibited internationally, and select projects are represented by Anastasia Photo Gallery, Loomis, and Subject Matter. She regularly lectures at high schools, universities, museums, and conferences. Um, And so, welcome. Thank you so much. So, is there anything you want to add to that? (laughs) Oh, gosh. I, I don't. I don't like talking about myself, but I, I guess the only other thing I would add is that I'm um, in the context of a, a Wabanaki show with a focus on indigenous artists that I myself am not native, but I'm uh, half Vietnamese and half the descendant of Eastern European Jews. That's quite a combination, <laughs> Vietnamese and, and Jewish. Oddly parallel. Hmm. So I guess the first question that comes to my mind is, uh, well, actually, let's Another thing that intrigued me about your past is that you were uh, you studied architecture at Columbia University, and then it's quite a stretch from architecture to photo documentary journalism. So, 
So the plan was always from the get-go, I think from when I was maybe 12 or 13. I wanted to be a journalist, uh, and I was the editor of my high school newspaper, and I got to college and immediately joined my college newspaper. My parents maybe very closely follow the model of sort of immigrant Americans and what they value. Um, and my father's a doctor and my mom's an attorney. And so in their minds, journalism wasn't maybe the right path. So I, architecture was a way of sort of assuaging their fears about their daughter for another few years. But I always wanted to be a journalist. So now you are one. And now I am one. Uh, <clears throat> so tell me about uh, why you're so interested in the colonial perspective of that? It's funny. I, I've i been thinking about this a lot recently, and I haven't always been able to articulate it because on one hand, I've always felt like it was completely absent from my education, that growing up in the Washington, D.C. area, going through a curriculum that almost entirely focused on white Western history, um, that that concept wasn't even really part of what I learned uh, as as a child. It wasn't really until university that I started to understand what exactly colonialism was, what it meant for major, largely European world powers to go into other countries' continents and say, well, these resources, these people, this land is ours now. Um, so I'd never really it – it was kind of – a stark realization for me to start looking at the world through that lens. But at the same time, I was brought up by a very strong, fiercely proud Vietnamese woman who spent my entire childhood telling me, look, we as Vietnamese people, we were colonized first by the Chinese for a thousand years, then by the French, then by the Americans, and we beat all of them. We kicked them all out. And that's part of who you are. And so that was always a huge part of my identity, you know, being raised Jewish in America, you know, by my father's parents being immigrants from Eastern Europe, that was, you know, that form of colonization was also very much part of my identity. So it was always present, but it was also completely absent from sort of the more mainstream educational discussions I was having. And I think a lot of my journalism, a lot of my work is an attempt to say, we're looking at history all wrong. We're, we're looking at it from this perspective that completely normalizes and excuses a lot of our past behaviors. Um, and so I, I think that's why that became the lens through which I look at a lot of stories. <clears throat> right. And you've done a lot of work since I think it's 2011 with the Pulitzer Center. And uh, why were you drawn to that, to the, to the Pulitzer Center? So I got my start as a newspaper photographer, which is exactly what I wanted to do. And I was, I'm was i very glad still that that is my foundation in journalism, that I, I started working while I was a college student for the New York Daily News. Uh, and then I worked for the Wall Street Journal. And you know I really got to know New York City um, and the people of New York City. But what I started to feel after about four or five years of doing that is that, you know, the the joy, but also a fundamental problem with newspaper photography is that you only get 15 minutes to maybe a few hours with the people and the stories that you cover. And so that fast pace is really exciting and you get to know a lot and you become this generalist in the city, but you also never get to dig into any one thing. And so I started to feel like, okay, I've, I've got this foundation. I've learned how to shoot sports and fashion and features and all of these different things. But I really would like to actually be able to get to know a place, get to know a person, get to know a family. 
And so I started trying to figure out, okay, you know, obviously no, I'm 25, no newspaper is going to send me abroad to work on long-term reporting on my own. How can I make that happen? And so I started slowly, I would take a few weeks or maybe a month off every year and just save up money and sort of send myself somewhere. Um, and initially that was East Africa. I, in 2011, South Sudan became independent. And I thought, okay, that seems like a major international story. I'll go and try to cover that. And I lost a lot of money doing that because no one wanted to publish my work because it wasn't great. Um, but while I was there, I happened to pass through Kampala, Uganda. And um, one of the first stories I heard about while I was in Uganda was the fact that the first LGBTQ rights activist in the country had been murdered uh, in his own home. And so I reached out to the organization that he had founded. I started photographing them. And a year later, Uganda, actually, the parliament passed uh, the first iteration of an anti-gay law. And so I went to this organization, to the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting, who have been supporting me pretty constantly since then. And I said, look, I I think I actually have a really good basis in the story. I know all of these players. I got to know this community. They trust me. They will give me access. I'd like to go back and keep working on the story. And I applied for a grant, and they said yes. And it was, it was sort of the first time that any major organization trusted me with international reporting. Um, and that, that was the start of my relationship with them. Hmm. I think that the, <clears throat> the uh, quote from Joseph Pulitzer III is pretty telling of what that organization stands for. When he says, we will illuminate dark places and with a deep sense of responsibility interpret these troubled times. So that's basically what, what you've been doing, right? Illuminating the dark places. Trying. Uh, so one of those places happens to be uh, the boarding schools, that issue. So what brought you to that? So it's actually a very strange sequence of connections through the Pulitzer Center. So I, I ended up reporting for quite a few years um, on and off for about four years in Uganda thinking about homophobia and how homophobia was actually a product of Western colonization between the British penal code that was left behind um, and then Western evangelicals coming into the country once Idi Amin was deposed. Because of that, the Pulitzer Center asked me to do some reporting on how criminalizing sexual orientation usually leads to a spike in public health crises, especially HIV rates. And then they sent me to an AIDS conference in Australia in 2014. And while I was there, I read a UN AIDS report that had a single line mentioning that First Nations Canadians have one of the fastest growing rates of HIV of any group of people in the world. And that just that just completely stunned me. You know, the idea that this wealthy, stable nation with better health care than we have in the United States could have this massive public health crisis. I believe the numbers were, it's been a while since I've looked at this, but from 2012 to two, 2002 to 2012, HIV rates among First Nations Canadians went up by 24%. Um, you know, we're seeing HIV rates decline in almost every single part of the world. And so I, I wrote up another grant application. I sent it to them. I spent a month in British Columbia, Saskatchewan, and Ontario. And almost every single HIV-positive First Nations person I interviewed referenced residential school. And I'd never heard of residential school before. It's not something that I learned about as a student. It was never part of any of my textbooks. Um, and I, I 
while I was there, I had been producing this body of work looking specifically at public health, looking at HIV and in many communities, that's a function of injection drug use. And so I came away with this body of work and I got home and I realized this is not photography that I want to publish. This is not useful. It's not shining a light in a dark place. It's, if anything, stigmatizing and two-dimensional and it's not getting to the core of the issue. But I realized that the residential school story, that that's something huge that was just not being discussed at the time, not in Canada and especially not in America. What year was that? That was 2014. So it was before the conclusion of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada. So most non-Native Canadians still didn't really know much about boarding schools. I think that's changed a lot since then. But in America, we still barely talk about it. Right. So that sort of piqued your interest in the boarding school issue. And then you did you go, you went for a grant to study that. But so I essentially went back to the Pulitzer Center, and this is why I am so grateful for my relationship with them, because if I'd been there on assignment for a magazine, I would have had to file those photos, and that story would have been published, and that probably would have been the end of my relationship with a lot of the people I met on that trip, um, because they were hard images that I I don't believe were now. The um, images, you're talking about the, the drug images? Yeah. or. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And, you know, if I, it, practically speaking, if you are going to investigate the spread of HIV in First Nations communities, the the primary way in which it was spread was through injection drug use. There's, you know, an opioid crisis in most parts of North America, but particularly in First Nations communities in Saskatchewan, which is where I ended up focusing. Um, but it was so hard to reduce a public health crisis to addiction when every single person was talking to me about childhood trauma and all of these things that they'd lost that clearly still deeply affected them and was clearly that that I realized was the story. And so I went back to the Pulitzer Center and I essentially told them, look, I kind of screwed up. I didn't do my job right. I was an outsider. I didn't know the whole context and the whole history. I need to go back and try this again. Will you give me another grant? And luckily they said yes. And so about 10 months later, I went back to Saskatchewan. Uh, I spent about three weeks in Regina and went and revisited a lot of the same people I'd spent time with the year before. Um, but this time realized I needed to focus on a different story and I also needed to photograph it in a very different way. And you did that um, and you created a a book on that. So this you're still doing that project, but, you know, like in different places other than Canada right now. But a book came out of that, a, photo, a photo, uh, I don't know how you... It's a photo book. Photo yeah. book. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you received the uh, the Inga Morath Award for that work. Could you tell me a little bit about what you did? So one of the things that I had to think about when I went back to Canada was, okay, I, I created these images, but fundamentally, are they good, responsible, empathetic journalism? And, you know, I, I was trained as a news photographer. I was taught to photograph the things that were happening in front of me. And that's, that's just what I'd always known as someone who is in many ways a sort of journalist, purist. Um, but the problem is not, not all imagery, not all information is valuable. And imagery can often be damaging and stigmatizing. And I realized that so much of this story was about things that were inherently unphotographable. You know, 
the takeaway themes for me became this idea of intergenerational trauma and cultural genocide and things that we still have a really hard time talking about, much less thinking about visually. And so I decided that what I wanted to do when I went back was to photograph and create multiple exposure portraits of boarding school survivors where I would interview someone about their experiences and their memories. I photographed them. And then based on our conversation, based on what they'd told me, I went in search of a secondary image that represented the place where they had been in school or something a little more ethereal, something about their memories of that time. Um, in Canada, it was quite easy because in Saskatchewan in particular, a lot of these structures are still standing. There are a lot of sites still of where the boarding schools once stood. So I could literally go and overlay a, a photograph of a survivor with, with the building where he would have been as a young child. So it's almost like some sort of modern uh, art sort of look. A little. It's, you know, and when I started doing it, there was a fair amount of pushback from the photojournalism community of this is not journalism. This is not representational photography. And, you know, I, I don't need to argue with that. If that's how people feel, that's how they feel. And I understand that. But I would also argue that what I'm doing is a more responsible, more compelling way to encourage people, especially children who I consider I consider students to be my main audience. I would argue that this is a more engaging way to address this story and get them to engage with the history. Than, so it's a bit outside of the box. Yeah, You know, exactly. when you take a, a, a profile or a picture of somebody's uh, image, their face or whatever, and then you overlay like the school that they went to or whatever – emphasize their life experience, you overlay that onto the, onto the face, which kind of, uh, I don't want to say distorts the, 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 that facial image, but I, I was, you know, it's kind of adds something to it. And you, you look at that and you say, you know, what, what am I looking at? It complicates it for yeah. sure. And I think in, in the context of teaching, um, which is what the main purpose of that book that I published was to distribute it to high schools across Canada and the United States, and that's the Pulitzer Center helped fund that. Um, I really wanted to put something in students' hands that would allow them to examine it and try to figure out what was going on. And to you know, to some extent, I really I believe deeply in the power of photography, but I'm also worried that you know the amount of imagery that we all consume on a day to day basis is overwhelming. You know the the impact that images like Nick Ut's photo in the Vietnam War of that little girl running away from napalm, you know, that mm. that stopped our country when that ran. Now we see those images yeah, every day. Yeah, it's all the time. It's like every war you see, you see an image like that. Exactly. It's and so we don't we don't process it anymore. We, we're so desensitized to it. So I think as photographers, we then have to ask ourselves, what can we do to stop people? What can we do to get them to really engage? I think, you know, you showed me that you, I have a copy of your book that you gave me. And thank you for that. Uh, but what I found really interesting about those pictures was the, what is it? There's a, there's an overlay that the two, there's the real picture, the, the original picture, and then there's a little thin sort of transparency, transparent uh, paper that lays on top of that in the book, and then on the I think it's the other, the opposite side of the photo is a story about your interview and what you brought away from that, uh, which I found. Really intriguing when you look at, at both those things. It's very creative. I th Part of, I wanted to be, you know, the, the double exposures to me are the main product of this project. But, you know, we have to talk about in the context of indigenous history in this country, the idea of erasure 
And to some extent, those images are erasure. There are a few where you cannot read the person's face, where you sort of lose their identity. Um, and so I wanted to make sure that in any book I published that you could also see the, the full portrait as well. And I think there's also that sort of interactive component. Again, it's just, it's another gimmick. To no, get. I think that was, I think that was really well thought out. Thank you. You know, and there's not many people nowadays that are that uh, creative and they think that much out of the box. So I think that was... I can credit the architecture background for the transparent paper. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So you've you've done those interviews. Tell me about what struck you about those uh, interviews in Canada. I think you also mentioned Alaska too. So so far, so the uh, my goal is to examine the legacy of coercive assimilation policy, especially through education, um, especially with youth around the world in indigenous communities. And, you know, the sad and horrifying reality is that almost every colonial power created some similar idea of the of the Indian residential school, Indian boarding school. Um, you know, the Japanese did it to the Ainu and the Norwegians and the Swedes did it to the Sami and the Danes did it to the Inuit in Greenland. And it's, I mean, it's just in every corner of our planet, there there has been some version of this. So I'm, I'm hoping to work on this project in a similar way in about 15 different countries in total. And so far, I've looked at Canada and Alaska, uh, sorry, Canada and Australia. And this year, I'm working in the United States. Um, in both Canada and Australia, I felt comfortable representing the history and the story through one through one community in one part of the country because both governments have taken steps to systematically address their own history with coercive assimilation policies, whether that's the stolen generation in Australia or the residential schools in Canada. We have not addressed our own history with BIA boarding schools, mission schools, foster care in this country in in a real national way. And also as someone who is American, as a non-native settler in this country, I felt it was also my responsibility to more comprehensively look at the diversity of experiences in the U.S. So this year, I'm attempting to reach people in maybe 20 to 25 communities across the country. So your experience in, tell me about your experience in, let's say, Alaska. Alaska was fascinating and very different. You know, in, in Canada, almost uniformly the stories that I heard were of deep trauma and not just an individual's deep trauma, but also carrying the trauma of their parents and their grandparents and these nearly identical experiences that people had around the country of being beaten when they spoke their language, of encountering a horrible sexual and physical assault, of, you know, there was medical testing that a lot of kids experienced, just this overwhelming and very constant experience. Um, Alaska Alaska has a slightly different relationship to the boarding schools, partially because Alaska joined the United States so late that they weren't dealing with a lot of the federal policies um, until much later. So I, I think in many ways, Native Alaskans escaped the brunt of the Indian boarding school era. Um, and to this day, a majority, I would say a majority, of, or not a majority, but a significant number of Native Alaskans, particularly those who live in remote villages, are still voluntarily sending their schools to BIA boarding schools, um, like, uh, 
I want to say I always confuse Chamawa and Chilaco. I believe Chilaco was the one that's still operating. Um, and Riverside in California. And, you know, there there are uh, several off-reservation BIA boarding schools still operating. Um, and partially because it was never co- – it was never – children were never taken by force in Alaska. It was almost always done with the cooperation of parents. And in a lot of these coastal villages in particular, it was almost always just for high school. So children were already 13 or 14 by the time they left home. They had a grounding in their own language and family history. And I'm I'm speaking from the interviews I did in one particular Yupik village on the West Coast. So I, you know, obviously that may not be universally true in Alaska, but but I was surprised that in many of the interviews that I did that people seem to have a a much more positive view of of that relationship of that history. So this project uh, is taking you to how many different countries? I would like to cover about 15. I'm, I'm hoping to include uh, – so uh, starting with the English-speaking former British colonies of Canada, America, Australia, and New Zealand. Um, I would also like to include Japan and Taiwan, um, Norway and Greenland, um, in North Africa, um, Berber, nomadic tribes were often sent to boarding schools. In Latin America, it was a near constant. I was actually just contacted a couple days ago by a Colombian professor who's been working in YU communities in northern Colombia, um, where there still are Christian mission schools taking kids away. Um, so it's a, every every inhabited continent on this planet, there, there is some form of that. So I, I would like to include about 10 to 15 countries in total. Yeah. So you're going to be like 60 years old when you finish, <laughs> Pretty when you much. finish this. Pretty much. I'm really bad at ending projects. I just I start something and I get deep into it and I just can't finish. So you get so. on all these different rabbit holes. And, exactly. Um, but, okay, so you're sort of at the beginning of this from, uh, from your perspective, I guess. Yeah. So, all right, so now you're focusing on the United States. Yes. And so... Where do you plan on talking to people in the in the U.S.? So, so far, I've spent a considerable amount of time in Lakota Territory. Um, I started in Navajo Nation in a uh, satellite segment of Big Navajo called Rama, um, which is actually the site of the first native-run high school in the United States. Um, that was the first place I went. Uh, then I, my next, I met a... A group of Lakota tribal elders from Pine Ridge Reservation, uh, and everything about this project has kind of been funny and serendipitous and inexplicable. I, when I started out, I kind of said to myself, you know, I'm not going to go to Pine Ridge. It's the place in this country where anytime there's a Native story, every journalist gravitates to Pine Ridge. There's been so much work done there. A lot of it has been, in my mind, deeply problematic. I'm going to avoid it. I'm just not. I'm not going to make that part of the story. And then on the first trip I took for Signs of Your Identity in America, I met a bunch of members of the tribal council who said, you need to come to Pine Ridge. And when a tribal elder tells you to come somewhere, you go. So uh, that was the next place I went. Um, and then I was actually on my way to uh, to visit. Uh, I had also serendipitously met a Crow uh, archaeologist and ethnographer who had invited me to the Crow Reservation to work. And I was on my way there when Standing Rock began. And so that derailed the project for quite a while. I spent on and off a year covering 
that movement and the fallout and the politics and all of, all of these things that were tied together. Um, and then I just resumed again uh, this year. And so now, um, and so I, in May, I went to Alaska. So those have been the three primary communities I've spent time in. Um, and I'm hoping to reach about 20 by uh, February of next year. Yeah. So I met you in Portland. I was on a panel. I forget what that was. So I won an award uh, for this work um, called the uh, through Main Media Workshop, which is a, a small college that focuses on, I believe, photographic education in Maine. And they asked to exhibit the work at a small gallery in Portland. And uh, we had a little back and forth about how that should go. And I'd asked if they could fly out one of the people who'd been in the book um, for the event so that he and I could be in conversation. He's someone, uh, he's a Cree elder, and we've taught together in schools in Canada pretty extensively. Um, and something happened and it wasn't possible. And I said, well, please, can we make sure that there's some event that includes Indigenous voices? Because I deeply believe in my work. I try to make sure that it is ethical and sensitive and informed. But there are inherent complications and problems with the fact that I am not Indigenous working in Indigenous communities. And I think it is extremely important to acknowledge that and be aware of it and try to incorporate Indigenous voices as much as I can in the work itself and in how I talk about and show the work. Um, and so I think Maine Media organized a panel that featured you and an educator from the Abbey Museum um, and someone who'd been involved in the TRC. And so that's how we met, I think, last fall. It was maybe October of last year. Right. Yeah, and then then we invited you back. And here I am. <laughs> and here you are. <laughs> uh, okay, so the... Uh, so the, the, the Alaska and the Canada, those are a little different. Now, and you said you've been to Pine Ridge. How was that? That, the the Lakota experience, I've, I've been, I've interviewed people in, I believe, every, every one of the Sioux reservations. I've been to Pine Ridge and Rosebud and Lower Brule and Cheyenne River and Standing Rock, um, that experience, and it's physically actually quite close to where I was primarily working in Saskatchewan. It's basically just on the other side of the border. Um, but that experience is both what I expected and what I heard in Canada. And to the extent that I almost – I've noticed that I almost hear the same stories and the same sentences from boarding school survivors in different countries, from you know from – Australian Aboriginal survivors of the stolen generation to both Canadian and American survivors of the boarding school system, I've, I've heard the same sentences come up. Things like, you know, I still to this day have a hard time hugging my children. I didn't know how to express love. You know, it's very stark to me just how similarly these institutions affected Indigenous people from place to place. Um, and Pine Ridge was no different. Um, you know, the the difference, the, the main thing that I started to realize in the United States um, versus Canada is that in Canada, the system was very uniform. It was 
funded by the government, administered by the church, either the Catholic, Anglican, or Presbyterian church. And so there was this kind of uniformity to the experience from place to place. But in America, because we have the separation of church and state, there were the government Bureau of Indian Affairs, boarding schools. There were the less regulated. Okay, hang on to that yes. thought. Okay. Hang on to it. Uh, station break here. You're listening to WERU Abenaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring, and we're talking uh, with Daniela Zalkman, an award-winning documentary photographer. So, where were you? <laughs> so, in the United States, unlike in Canada, where the system was very uniform, there were all of these different forms of coercive assimilation that sort of dovetailed into one overall experience, but that, that you know, varied dramatically. So there, there were the BIA government Bureau of Indian Affairs boarding schools. There were the less regulated Christian mission schools that weren't overseen by the government, but sometimes were funded secretly by the government. There were things like Mormon placement, where Mormon missionaries would go particularly to the Southwest um, and tell parents that they could give their children better lives in Salt Lake City and would take young Native children to Utah. There was, you know, similar to Canada, the foster care epidemic where a disproportionate number of Native children were taken into care when they did not need to be. So there was just a much greater breadth of coercive assimilation experiences that I felt like I needed to start understanding. Um, but fundamentally, the Pine Ridge experience, every person I talked to again, talked about deep trauma and the ways in which these things were continuing to affect them 40, 50 years later. So this, this trauma seems to be pretty much the same uh, wherever, you, wherever you go. They say the same things. They say the same things. I think the trauma is felt in similar, you know, it's what is it, what does it do to an individual identity or a community identity when language becomes punishable, when mm. you are told that the core parts of your identity are somehow less important, less good, need to be wiped out? Um, I, you know, seeing how that affects groups of people, um, it's people are people. It, you know, the, the effects seem to be pretty similar from place to place. So in Canada, it was more open that that effort to uh, assimilate and uh, to make the 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 tribal nations or whatever sort of meld in with everybody else. Whereas in the United States, um, they, we didn't have a maybe we did I don't know, but you're saying that there's some. Uh, uh, underlying sort of it's it's less open that effort i don't know if it's less open but I, everything about the conversation in canada has been more public partially because first nations metis and inuit people in canada are a much more visible minority it's more than four percent of the canadian population whereas in the united states it's one and particularly in our centers of power in you know the east coast in new york and dc there is very little visible native representation. And so it's easy for people who are in charge of policy to just forget. You know, you listen to the recent presidential, vice presidential debates, and when, you know, candidates who are trying to show that they are, they care about 
representation of their constituents in every part of the country. They'll mention Latino Americans, they'll mention Black Americans, they'll mention Asian Americans. They almost always forget to mention Native Americans. It's not part of the conversation in a way that it is in Canada. And the other main difference is that Canada had this seven-year-long Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And that both within Indigenous communities created a conversation where all of a sudden people who had never talked about their experiences, had never shared with their children or their grandchildren what they went through, they started to talk. And generally speaking, you know, I think every person deals with trauma in different ways. Every person copes in different ways and not everyone wants to or heals by sharing. But I think I believe fundamentally that storytelling is a huge part of healing. And so something was opened up when people started going through that process of sharing. And we have not had that in the United States. And I feel all the time when I'm interviewing people, you know, I it is not, I believe it is not my job as a journalist to push people to share stories that they clearly are not yet psychologically ready to tell. But I, I know when I'm interviewing someone who has had something dark happen to them and they, they're just skimming the surface of their memories and their experiences. And it's it's not my job. It's not, say, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a social worker. I'm not someone equipped to dig into those experiences. But I can tell that they're there and that they're they're just not. But you are in your work shining a light on that those dark spaces to a certain extent. To a certain extent. But, you know, I think also above all, people have to be ready to talk about certain things. And I think we're we're for many reasons, both within communities and structurally within the way our government has handled our own past, we haven't created a space yet for people to be willing to talk about some aspects of of this history. Yeah, and uh, I guess the word I was searching for earlier was more subversive. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Uh, in, in, the, in the United States. And, and I think as we were talking earlier, uh, you mentioned something about um, when people don't realize what's happening to them. And, uh, and it's, it's obvious to some people but not to them. It's sort of like you can't see the forest for the trees sort of thing. And maybe that's happening in this country quite a bit. Well, and, you know, unfortunately, these schools worked. You know, there are a lot of people who went to boarding school. They had grown up speaking their native language. Maybe even it was their first language. And it was literally beaten out of them. And by the time they left, they no longer spoke it. They no longer wanted to speak it. They felt... Like there was something bad or wrong about being native. I, you know, I've seen that over and over again. And I, you know, I think there is a huge correlation, you know, going back to the reason why I stumbled across this history in the first place. A lot of the people I met in Canada who were struggling with different forms of addiction as coping mechanism were people who were still struggling with that idea of I am somehow less. I am somehow there is something wrong with my identity. And the flip side of that, because I think for any journalist, it's important to think about the good and healing and what it means to move past trauma. Almost every person I've encountered who has managed to make peace with those experiences is someone who has, in a deep way, returned to Indigenous culture. And it's, you know, these are generalizations made by someone who is not Indigenous and who can't ever completely understand this experience and what it means. But, you know, I, I think they're there are clear ties to a lot of people I've seen who have said, okay, I'm, 
I'm going to go back to this. I'm going to figure out who I am and where I come from and get back these things that were taken from me. Hmm. Interesting. So um, when you, when you, do you have an idea of, you may, you may not even have this, but of what you hope to pull out of all of these stories I don't know that I fully understand that yet. Um, Part of it, I I do think a lot about this idea that I I have literally heard the same sentences from people who grew up, who had these experiences thousands of miles apart. Um, I think thinking about the horrifying consistency of colonizing powers and the things that they did fundamentally in the name of resource extraction or land grabbing um, is is something that we really don't address enough, that we don't think about enough and making sure that we shift our educational curriculums to make sure that that is included as a part of who we are and, and what, you know, even the United States is essentially a new colonial power, what we have done. Um, I think that's an important part to me as well. Um, but I don't, I don't necessarily know what this is all going to coalesce into. And I, I also worry. I talk to a, a friend who's a Kiowa writer uh, regularly, and one thing that he's said to me often is, you know, like even the non-native journalists who are doing good work in Indian country, they always want to talk about trauma. They always want to look at trauma. They don't ever want to look at, like, look at the native pharmacist who's doing great work in his community. It's it's always the dark things in the past. And Obviously, I think that we need to address our own histories and be aware of them, but I also want to make sure that I'm thinking about healing and reconciliation as well. So I, figuring out how to tie all these million different threads together will sure. take a Sure. I mean, while. so, so I, I've, tar- I've heard from some uh, aspects of this that it should not be called reconciliation, but maybe conciliation. Mm, right, because there's never been any to begin with. <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, but, I mean, yeah, absolutely. The s- stories that uh, Native people have, it, it, it's just not, there's no outlets for them. Yeah. And uh, it's, and we do need outlets, and we need people to, I say, amplify our voices. Yes. Rather than replace our voices. Yes. Or put their own spin on things, which I think that uh, uh, your work really... Um, helps us to amplify our issues and our voices. And I think it's really, you know, it's really important that, that that's being done. Uh, because, you know, we do need allies. Always. Always is right. And in Maine, of course, Maine is, we have a, uh, we had a Truth and Reconciliation uh, project that, uh, that went on for a couple of, three, four, maybe five years. Um, and I think that uh, that did st- that helped a bit, but uh, I think we we still need more yeah. work on that area because after you've done that, what's next? You know, there there has to be a plan for what do we do next. Um, I think I mean thinking about, but part of it to me is that America has never, in a structured national way, talked about this. Maine has maybe addressed it sort of as a state. But until we as American people 
collectively can say, yes, this is what we did. And, you know, I, th I think there are all these little facets of that. You know, a lot of Americans say, well, you know, I wasn't even in the country. I, you know, my, I'm a second generation immigrant. I wasn't part of this. But, the, you know, so so am I. My, my mother came here in 1968 and my father's parents came in the 20s. But have I benefited from the fact that land was stolen from indigenous people? Absolutely. My parents owned land in what should be Pamunkey territory. You know, they, I think figuring out how to live with some of those histories when you were talking on the way here about living with discomfort, we need to be better about being able to feel discomfort and, and accept that. Um, I think it makes us better people. Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, the United States has always sort of viewed itself as the um, the purveyor of human rights, you know, and I, I don't think, and you're right, I mean, they've never really take a, looking at, taken a, a, a look at themselves, you know, internally to see, hey, you know, this is how we got started. You know, our country is built on, and I've said it before, the bodies of Native people, uh, and they've never addressed that issue. And in my, in my thoughts, and until they do address that and figure out um, how we can uh, help the Native people in general, and maybe even just get the stories out and just treat them, treat us as equals, which they never have done, uh, then we're going to keep treating other countries like that. Yeah. And uh, we are now, because of what's going on nationally, you know, we're looked at uh, in a diff very different light than we have ever been looked at. And I think it's because uh, the underlying ugliness is, is, is coming out. Yeah. I mean, we've, we have always been fundamentally a country of white supremacists. We've always been a country that has believed that the people who should be in power, who are more smart, more capable, are straight white men. And we haven't necessarily said as much, but you, all it takes is to look at the people who are in the White House. It, all it takes is to look at that parade of, of white male faces. It's just, it's so embarrassing that we've never had a female president. It is so deeply horrifying to me to think that there are little girls growing up in this country who don't necessarily know that they can grow up to be president because it's never happened. You know, it's, I think, I think a lot about modern Germany as a model for how we could think about our past. You know, the German educational system is so careful about how they talk about the Holocaust. There is deep shame in Germany about their recent history. And that's a good thing. You know, they get really nervous when there are too many German flags in one place and they get really nervous about exhibitions of nationalism because sometimes exhibitions of nationalism aren't great. And I, I wish that that could be applied in some way to the United States. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, the, the U.S. has a very long way to go. And uh, it, even to start that journey, they have to, they have to recognize uh, how they got started. And that's basically uh, with Native land and... Um, and slave labor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yep. it's just not a not a good not a not a good story for the. It for doesn't. The, uh, it yeah. doesn't fit with the American dream. It doesn't fit with. But what is the American dream now? I mean, has that changed? 
Well, it's changed for sure. And now that we are actively banning people from coming into our country, it's certainly a shadow of what we thought it was. But even even at its height, even when we were in theory opening our doors, we still, you know, we still tried to keep out the Irish. We still tried to keep out Jewish Holocaust survivors. We still tried to keep, you know, we, we have not on our own been kind to almost any wave of immigrants or refugees that has come to this country, you know, with maybe the exception of South Vietnamese after the Vietnam War. Um, you know, we, we have not been traditionally hospitable. We've always figured out, even with people who we now would consider just white Americans, you know, the Italians and the Irish, we still try to keep them out as well. We have othered every group of people. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you know, this idea that that we're a land of immigrants who built this country together. Yes, we're a diverse country, um, but a lot of people had to kind of claw their way in. It's true. That's very true. Um, so anyway, here you're here in Maine, and uh, you're working on your uh, your project. Yes. And um, you're you're looking to talk with people that are interested, Native people that are interested in talking to you. Yes. So anyone who has experience in foster care, in I, I'm actually not sure to what extent um, Native people in Maine have been sent out to Bureau of Indian Affairs boarding schools. I believe that that hasn't happened much since Carlisle, but uh, there were definitely Christian mission schools being run. Um, anyone who's had any of those experiences who is interested in speaking with me and sharing their stories, I would love to speak with. Yeah, I, in Maine, it was more of the foster care yeah. kind of experience. And, uh, and uh, yeah, so Maine is, you'll, you'll find that Maine is the original colonial, one of the original colonial states. Yep. I think even more so than it, my personal opinion, even more so than, uh, than Massachusetts. Um, you, you'll be, well, I don't know because, and I hate, I always hate to say this, but you know, Maine is the whitest state and it's, that's arguable, really? but it is the whitest. It, the last I knew it was the whitest wow. unless, uh, unless Florida is. Well, it can't be Florida anymore because of. Yeah. So, yeah, um, I, I, believe, why, I would say like Wyoming would yeah. probably be the other candidate, yeah. but. Okay. I, 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 <laughs> I think Maine is, Maine is sure it. it's up there. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think uh, you'll have some really. Hopefully, people will will come forward and 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 talk to you, and because I I think that uh, your project is is really, really important, and I'd kind of like to have some of the main uh, experience in that in that project and in those stories. Um, so is there, in all of your, in all of your experiences in Alaska, Canada, and in a few places here in, in the United States, uh, what was, what's the most memorable? Um, it, it depends. There are so many different you know, the, the learning curve was very steep for me when I started working in indigenous communities because I grew up in Washington, D.C., and I don't think I met anyone who was Native until in a, in a meaningful interaction until I started working on this project. So it, it took a lot of work and a lot of messing up on my part and a lot of very kind people who gently told me that I was messing up um, 
to figure out the protocol and cultural norms and the things that I needed to do to be aware and sensitive as an outsider. Um, and I'm extremely grateful to a lot of people in Saskatchewan and Regina who spent a lot of time very kindly teaching me the things that I needed to know. And I, I think maybe, you know, I'm, I try to be very aware of the very, very fine line between, you know, when, when does a non-Native person become that, like, weirdo, new age hippie who's, you know, sponging too much and going, you know, it's, there, there's a very thin barrier there. But I, I went to a sweat um, early on on that first trip back to Saskatchewan when I was interviewing people about boarding school. And that was incredibly powerful. Um, I think both just the idea that I was being trusted in some capacity um, and being invited in to something that was sacred and traditional meant a lot to me. Um, but I think most of all, just the the conversations, the stories that people have been willing to share with me, I that is such a huge privilege of my job that complete strangers invite me into their homes and tell me some, I mean, some of the most deeply personal stories that they hold. Um, that, that, you know, that's the thing that I care most about and the thing that kind of astonishes me every time I go back to work on this project because it's, it's asking a lot. Um, and I, I know that and I'm, I cannot imagine if for some people how difficult it must be to talk about these experiences. Um, and I, would only ask that if I believed it was deeply important, but I know it is still a, a personal sacrifice for everyone to have to unearth and relive some of these experiences. Yeah, because I think uh, some of the things that probably weren't thought about during the TRC experience and first beginning in Canada and also here in Maine is the actual trauma and reaction of reliving that stuff and, and how... Uh, how to address that once you bring it out. I don't have any insight into the process in Maine yet, but in Canada, I mean, it was it was horrible. The process through which people were asked to testify, they were essentially being interrogated. You know, the, there was the Truth and Reconciliation Commission when committees would go to communities and ask people into safe spaces to talk if they wanted to, and that was one thing. But for the actual class action settlement um, where people were essentially paid, you know, were compensated for their experiences. It was the most thoughtlessly assembled process I can imagine. I mean, you know, people were essentially asked to itemize their trauma. You received X amount of money if you were assaulted this many number of times. If you were, you know, it, it was, it was just so thoughtlessly done. And there was absolutely no stipulation that counselors be present, that people seek any kind of therapy. I, I was so horrified by the way in which that was done. And I think journalists are guilty of many of the same things, you know, particularly in conflict, but with any story of trauma. We go into a community, we ask people to tell us these horrible stories, and then we leave. And we don't think about the consequences. We don't think about the aftermath. Um, and it's something that I hope that we all collectively can start to to be more aware of because it's it's not just work, it's people's lives. Um. Yeah, yeah, it's always struck me that for something that's to right or wrong, I don't know if, if it's uh, just the, in this country or whatever, but it's always, well, okay, so I, I wronged you and so here's X amount of dollars for that. It just seems not sufficient. I mean, it just seems like there should be other ways of addressing 
those wrongs rather yes. than just monetary. Well, and and I think monetary is important, unfortunately, in a culture that prizes money in above anything else. Yes. So I think that action is an important form of acknowledgement, but it can't be the only one. And, you know, part of the TRC findings in Canada, there were, I think, 84 recommendations. I'm not sure if I'm getting that number right. And slowly, they've started to be enacted here and there. But for, I think, the two years after the TRC, not a single one was adhered to. And some of them were the tiniest little asks. Like, just in your swearing-in ceremony for new Canadian citizens, acknowledge First Nations people. That's that was just the tiniest little thing that says, like, these are, this is part of the identity of our country. And even that, just, it, it didn't happen. So... Yeah, you know, I, th- I think the money is in its own way important, but that's that's not all. You can't throw money at a problem and say, we've fixed it, we've said sorry, we're moving on now. There's something that Australia does, excuse me, that I think is interesting, and there are arguments for it being tokenization, but, that, you know, they have an annual apology day, which I think is kind hmm. of an interesting idea of, okay, yeah. we are all as a country going to say, w- we did a lot of really terrible things, and this is... The act of making it better is a process, and it is a repeated process. Excuse me. So that uh, it seems to me that apology every year sort of brings that back to the fore. Exactly. It's not it just puts it on the radar screen, so to speak. It's it's saying you know the like the Jews have an annual day of remembrance for the Holocaust. We remember nine eleven every year. You know mm-hmm. the, these things don't go away. The right. the trauma doesn't go away, and I think that that idea is it, it's an important step. Yeah. So, I mean, they have recognized their their wrongs on a, on a congressional level here in this country, but that didn't get publicized. It got put in a, a file in, in the back of somebody's file cabinet. Right. So, yeah, I mean, that's right. It should be a national uh, recognition of wrongs. But instead we have Columbus Day. <laughs> We're working on that. Uh, so, okay, so... If you've got one last thought that you want to leave, I... I think for me, the the sort of central theme of all of the work that I do, whether it's this project on boarding school, whether it's uh, this organization I run um, advocating for women in photography, I think it's this idea that storytelling is the fabric of human life. It's how we learn. It's how we pass on memories. It's how we tell each other about ourselves and our past. And whether we're talking about fictionalized storytelling or nonfiction storytelling like what I do, we have to make sure that the people who are responsible for that storytelling in public, national, mainstream ways are a diverse group of people. And whether it's journalism or education or Hollywood, for the longest time, we have allowed storytelling to be guided by one particular demographic, you know, largely by white people, largely by men. And that has to change or we are not going to have an accurate nuanced, complete understanding of who we are and where we come from. And so I think I think everything I do is geared towards saying we, we have to change that. We have to make sure that everyone is empowered to tell their own story and that we listen when those people are telling their stories. I think that's that's the thing that both, I hope, journalists and storytellers and audiences are constantly thinking about. Right. And I and- just before we go, I just want to say that uh, we will be archiving this show, and uh, I'll put your uh, uh, your website information and uh, other things 
on the on the site so that if people are interested they can just click on that and find out more information so um, I want to thank uh, Danielle Zalkman award-winning documentary photographer for being with us today uh, the, the music for our show is by Rolf Richter a track called Little Eagles uh, from Dreamwalk and our engineer is Amy Brown I'm your host Donna Loring so tune in again next month for another Webinaki Windows <laughs>